Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. I hope you're doing okay, coping with the uncertainty of everything under the shadow of COVID-19. I can't reduce your stress around that, but hopefully we can reduce your stress a little bit around the college admission process. Um, For our show today, for the second and third segments, I'll be joined by Shannon Vasconcelos, college coach finance consultant um, and former financial aid officer at Boston University in Tufts. And she and I will be answering listener questions for all of you. Um, So thanks so much for submitting those. But first, um, as you can see, if you are actually watching a video of this, I'm joined by Megan Steubendeck, as well as being a very fancy person with a PhD in history from UVA, University of Virginia. I was an undergrad history major, so I was really impressed with that. Um, Where she had experience teaching undergraduates, she also has 10 years working for Arbor Bridge, a test prep company that we're happy to say partners with College Coach. So she's going to give us an update on testing this fall, which is definitely a moving target, I think, Megan. Yes. And maybe even into the spring, we'll sort of have to see as we talk about moves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're very grateful. One of the things that um, you can know, listeners, is that the Arbor Bridge folks send us regular emails letting us know what they're finding out. And we are extremely grateful for that. So um, all right. So I thought we could we could kick off with a listener question that I think really kind of exemplifies the, um, let's just say, challenging circumstances that students are in right now when they're trying to test. So this one listener said, would it be possible for you to cover the issues with ACT registration? They seem to be having exceptional technology staffing issues on top of dealing with COVID. I know that this is problematic for many people but I honestly feel as if they've started gaslighting students. It's clear from Reddit threads that we are not alone in being told we'll get emails, registration help, only to have tests canceled without any notification. We were supposed to get an email last week with instructions to register, which we did not. Instead, we got an email just this morning telling us that they couldn't register us and that we'd have to try to get a slot today at 10 with everyone else. This has been a disaster. I'd really like to understand what the heck is happening there that is causing them to treat so many of these students so poorly. We've been canceled three times. I have no confidence that I'll be able to register today. This was submitted on, um, I think, maybe August 3rd or so. Um, You've been an amazing resource, and I just really need some light on how they are correcting this situation. So, um, So I don't know, Megan, I can't help with that. So I was hoping that maybe you could give some insight. I can definitely give some insight, and I wish I could help this student move through this process as easily as possible, but even I can't can't do that, um, mostly because there are some issues happening at ACT. So we'll, we'll sort of back up and, and, and talk about uh, the couple of different things mm-hmm. the student has experienced. This student has really experienced the perfect storm of... Uh, of things that could go wrong in this process. And there are a number of students, you know, he or she, they're not alone. Uh, It's happening not just in the United States, it's happening internationally to students as well, juniors, seniors, 
uh, it's really across the board. So there are a couple of things that happened at ACT. The first was, of course, what we all know, spring was canceled. There weren't mm -hmm. spring exams to be had. And so a lot of students, uh, it created a bottleneck of demand. Where lots of students are trying to get the same two or three test dates this uh, summer and fall. The second thing that happened is in June, they began to weed out the number of students who were going to be allowed to test. And the reason for that was social distancing. The ACT had to begin following guidelines, and they should, uh, to keep students safe who were going to be taking the test. And that meant decreasing the number of students who were allowed into the test centers that were scheduled a whole year in advance when no one knew this was going to happen. And so a number of students, particularly younger students, who uh, the ACT, when they looked at the rosters at schools and said, okay, we have to cut the school, perhaps when we look at the maps and know how far we have to move students around, um, we need to cut by 50%, we need to cut by 75%. And the first students that they cut were younger students who weren't, you know, weren't graduating this year in 2020 and needed the scores for eligibility for NCAA, although that has also changed um, in the interim. Uh, but they began to uh, take students, take away their seats essentially from those test sites. Um, so that was the second thing that was going on probably for the student. And the third was registration for the next year. So mm -hmm. registration for ACT opens on one day for the whole world for the entire next school year. It's not some sort of rolling thing where every month they sort of open another test date a year away. It's one big day. Uh, so they opened it all and you've got all this pent up demand from the spring and from the summer. And all of these students want to take this test. Uh, the second thing that they tried to do at the same time, which you can debate whether this was a good idea or not, is unveil a new registration portal, uh, a whole new tech infrastructure at mm. the same time. So you've got new tech infrastructure, you've got all this demand, you've got all of these questions, and that all hit at the same moment. And that's why what we saw when registration opened was the system couldn't handle it. There was just too much. I think the ACT came out and said that they saw... When they went back through all of their studies of how many of the highest peak days in ACT history when they opened registration, this was four times the amount of demand on that first couple of hours when they opened that they've ever seen in their history, which is a lot, especially when they've got a new system running. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's what crashed the system. And they had to take everything offline for a week and constantly kept saying like, we're going to be back tomorrow. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, actually, we're going to take it back. It's going to be on Monday. Uh, and they sort of had to move the, the deadline. So this student probably by now, it's been about two weeks since they opened. Things have quieted down, but that first week was really tumultuous. And so if you did have trouble then and you still need to test for some reason, um, and if you're safe to test and you want to try and register, now I recommend going on. There's a lot less activity and you might have a, a, a greater chance of, of getting the test that you need or want. Mm -hmm. How was the college board around all this? I mean, I heard, I did hear more complaints about the ACT than the college board. So how was that process? College board were pros at this in comparison. It was a really clean system. Uh, what their system did differently that I think helped uh, change this is that they went in and locked the system. So only certain groups of students could register the first week, primarily those students who were older, who were maybe graduating seniors in 2020 and still needed those scores for mm -hmm. something for their colleges. And they limited it to those high need students first and the students who like the student here had been registered for the spring and got canceled. Those students got first uh, sort of shot at the seats on that first week and that throttled the demand and made it a little bit easier. So their system was able to handle, they also didn't unveil a whole new tech system at the same time. So it was a little bit easier on the SAT front. ACT though, just was overwhelmed. And 
it does feel, I think, to students that they were gaslighted by by the ACT, but in fact, also the ACT just was blindsided by it in many ways, and they were just trying to catch up uh, and make sure they had enough customer service and support, and they just really didn't have it to handle that first week or so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they probably should have apologized fulsomely oh. and said, we don't, we just don't know, you know, but beyond that, um, I mean, tech issues happen. As you said, we can debate whether or not they should have unveiled a new system, but <laughs> they also probably needed the new system for various reasons. So, exactly. yeah. So what about, um, what about sort of like, how taking tests with social distancing. I mean, you kind of touched on that, but like, how is that going to work with students? I mean, I, I've been talking to, like, I was talking to this one student and uh, she's actually a junior signed up for the fall. So I was like, I want you to know this might be a good year to delay it. If like, you can delay it in any year. Um, but if you have anybody in your family who's immunocompromised, remember, like, I know that testing has started happening earlier and earlier, but the fact is juniors it's designed so the juniors take test in the spring of their junior year, not the fall. And that was a revelation to this family. And they said, well, just about everybody in this family is immunocompromised. So maybe we should wait. And I was like, yeah, you should probably wait. So I'm just kind of wondering what, what you've been hearing about that, like sort of the safety measures and things like that. Yeah. And I think this brings up the number one thing that everyone should keep in mind is that you should test if and only it is safe for you to test. And that might be for your family and for yourself, if you are immunocompromised or you have a father who um, you know, is, is in chemotherapy or whatever it might be, there might be reasons why for you, it's just not a safe option. Mm-hmm. Um, and you as a counselor, I'm sure Sally could talk to, you know, speak to that of how you can address that in your application. If you're concerned that not having that test score might be an issue for you or, or whatever it might be. And the other part is that if whether or not it's safe to test in your community too, is another question. So they're thinking about uh, mm-hmm. what test sites are available, what the transmissions rates look like in your community. We're noticing that actually international students, you know, we have it a little bit less under control here in the United States, the spread of the virus, but in some countries abroad, there are no issues with having this test right now. Mm-hmm. So there's a real difference based on where you live too. Um, but when students do go into the site, if they decide that testing is right for them, for their application, that it's safe for them to test, um, they will see social distancing. This will not be like any time you've ever taken it before. Uh, they do, uh, the college board and the ACT both follow practices of six feet distance. So the mm-hmm. line when you go in will be spaced out like every line you've been in in the last three mm-hmm. months. Uh, they're also, the desks are spaced out six feet apart. Uh, students are allowed to bring in hand sanitizer which to their desk, which was never allowed before. So bring your hand sanitizer. That's definitely something you'll have. There'll be Clorox wipes and the disinfecting wipes available. Uh, you'll also notice that proctors will look different. They will be wearing gloves. Uh, mm-hmm. They will also ask you uh, screening questions when you come in. The kind of classic screening questions we're seeing if you go to, like, say, a doctor's office or um, where they'll ask you, have you had a temperature? Have you been in contact with someone with COVID in the four- last 14 days? Uh, and then the proctors will all, for both SAT and ACT, will be wearing masks the entire time. So they will wear their masks. Uh, students, though, are not required to wear masks for the ACT, but you are for SAT. So if you're an SAT student out there and you're thinking about taking the test, SAT is going to require a mask. Uh, so one thing that I would recommend, the other thing is ACT could change its mind also at the last minute, as we have seen with some of these cancellations and changes <laughs> in policy. So what I recommend to all students is, uh, in addition to bringing your number two pencils and your calculator, you should have your sort of 
COVID pack as well. And it should have mm-hmm. some hand sanitizer and it should have a mask, whether or not you're taking SRT, ACT, because you'd hate to get to ACT. And that was the day before they decided you have to have a mask and you get turned away at the door after going through the registration system. You want to make sure you have that mask. And that also means practice with a mask. Masks change the testing experience. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of hot and sweaty and you get a little bit um, sort of stifled. And when you get a little bit anxious, you breathe differently. So you definitely want to be practicing your practice test at home by wearing your mask. Uh, so do definitely put that into your repertoire as you're getting ready for these exams this time. Mm-hmm. And make sure you have a comfortable mask. Yes. I mean, there are different levels of comfort, right? So, um, I mean, I find that those paper masks are more comfortable than some of the cloth masks that I've bought. So when, if I'm out for a walk, I want a paper mask. If I'm at the grocery store where it's really air conditioned, I'm fine with anything, but testing no matter what is a high stress experience. So, um, yeah, boy, I'm sympathetic. I mean, I think I've had my heart race and my heartbeat, you know, like I've gotten short of breath in tests before. So, um, all right. So what are, what are some tips that you might have in light of some of the cancellations that are happening and, you know, all those sorts of things? Yeah. So that first tip in terms of social distancing, I recommend again, mask wearing for your practice Mm -hmm. exam. That's a huge part of of the testing experience. So absolutely find the perfect mask, paper, cloth. Maybe it's like that happy print that makes you feel really, you know, in your flow and self-confident, which would be great on a test day. Um, The second thing that was in terms of registration is uh, for those of you who are trying to get into ACT uh, and to an ACT site and couldn't get one in those first weeks of chaos, um, or even an ACT, SAT. And one of the things to remember about ACT is ACT actually pre-placed a few students who were registered for say July or June or April and they, they, were, uh, they were canceled. They pre-placed you within 300 miles of your home to another test center before registration opened. And you might've gotten and be like, I live in Connecticut. I can't drive to Pennsylvania for my test. And you opened up and your registration was ready. What we're seeing is a lot of students canceling registrations that they had booked, moving to new places. And so there's a lot of variability happening right now inside the portal. So if you didn't get the location you wanted, you didn't get the date you wanted, keep checking back once a week. See if something has opened up or has shifted. So that's one way of trying to get a seat. And that applies both SAT and ACT. Um, uh, Like I said, with schools canceling or changing their policies, we might see people drop out of the testing process. Another one, like you said, Sally, was just wait. For you juniors, you don't need to rush to take the exam in the most. By the time we get to the spring, you may not have to worry about a mask. You may not have to mm. worry about this crunch. The crunch for test sites is only for this early fall. So just take a break, take a breather. It's okay. There'll be mm-hmm. plenty of test dates. And then the last thing that I would recommend is that some students have found success talking with their schools. Their schools, their home high school, has many times uh, decided that they're going to offer the SAT or ACT in-house on a school day. That is an option for all high schools to do in the nation, in the United States. And so sometimes just talking to your college counselor saying, I just want to take it once and there's enough kids, they might be willing to host for an in-day school day. Um, And those are more likely to move forward and not be canceled at the last minute. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I would imagine students get priority then, which they don't for a Saturday test date. Exactly. And not only do they get priority, they'll be the only ones there. will only be students from your school. So for some some schools, they're a little bit more um, open to the idea because they can contain who's there and coming into the school grounds, which they can't do for a national test day. Mm -hmm. I actually worked at a school that was a testing site and I was like a proctor or I was actually like an organizer of it. And I think that's completely what I would have gone to. Like, sorry, we're not doing Saturdays. We're doing Wednesdays. We're taking over the school and uh, just make things easier for our students that way, you know? 
Um, what about PSAT prepping? What have you been hearing about the PSAT? Uh, it's actually been very silent on the PSAT. It's not clear yet from the College Board or the National Merit Corporation whether or not the PSAT is going to happen this October, as usual. You know, anything is possible at this point. They may delay it um, and do it in the spring. They could do it still in October. They could just uh, have different dates that schools choose. It's really uh, sort of anyone's guess at this moment. So for right now, uh, don't stress yourself in preparing for the PSAT because most students don't need to prepare for it anyway. It's a really just a good practice diagnostic to go in and see what the SAT is all about using this PSAT or practice SAT. It's not going to count for college admissions. Um, and just wait and see. You'll, we'll probably know a little bit more about this once we get to mid-September um, or early September. We should hear, be, be hearing more from schools. But if you're really anxious and want to know, contact your high school uh, college guidance office and officers there. They have an idea. They may have more of an idea if your school will be offering it. Okay. And I want to reiterate something here. I talked to so many families where they say, well, she just took the SAT in the fall for practice. And I'm like, well, that's what the PSAT is for. It's the practice SAT. That's what the P stands for. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. And I'm like, yes, that's what it's for. Like, you don't need to do a practice. You have the PSAT. Um, so I just wanted to really reiterate that. Do you run into that all the time too? All the time. And I couldn't reiterate, I'm going to reiterate your reiteration, Sally, because it is so important. Um, and, you know, you don't, don't waste your time, your energy or your money um, using the real SAT as, an, as a practice exam or diagnostic. It's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. All right, good. All right. Thank you for helping me reiterate that. <laughs> I very much appreciate it. All right. So uh, we will be going on to the next segment now, but thank you so much, Megan. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sally. It was a joy as always. Absolutely. Bye. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Shannon Vasconcelos will now be joining me to answer listener questions. Um, welcome, Shannon. Thanks, Sally. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Good. All right. So let's start with an admissions question because we have a few more admissions questions on the docket than we have uh, finance ones. Yep. And this first question comes in from Christine. She sent it to us on Instagram. So folks, so just so you know, you can reach out to us, ask us your questions uh, on Instagram if you're not following us yet. Our um, 
our account is at College Coach BH. So make sure to give us a follow and you can send in any questions and we'll answer them on the air. But Christine asks us, how do you recommend researching the Why This College essay? That one is clearly a very tough one for students um, yes. because I read a lot of essays for why this college that kind of missed the mark. Um, so this doesn't fully answer the question, but I do want to just say, remember, you're not writing ad copy for the college, right? You're not saying right. this, you know, such and such school is a prestigious institution with a very fine economics program. That's not what you want to do. You want to say what I am looking for in a college is X to Y Z. And your college has it in spades. I mean, obviously say it more gracefully than that. But (laughs) in terms of like how you recommend researching, honestly, a lot of it is going to be on the website. I mean, I recommend no matter what college you're applying to, talking, saying something about the academics. I mean, in spite of the fact that I think a lot of students choose their school based on the football team, I just want to say that academics should be the most important reason. So what are you thinking about as your major or if you're undecided, which is totally fine, what are some of the options that might be interesting to you? You're not making a commitment. You're just saying, these are some of the different types of options that might be interesting to me at your school. And the way that your school approaches academics is interesting to me for these various reasons. Like when I worked at the University of Chicago and when I worked at Reed College, we had a core curriculum. And um, so every student had to take some of the same groups of classes. And so we really liked it when students knew that about us and talked about that as a positive. So, um, so look for some of the things that might be like a little unique and interesting about your college. Um, look for some of the extracurricular activities that might be interesting to you. A lot of this information is on the web page. That being said, if you've had a chance to visit the college, which really people can't do right now, but maybe you were able to visit back in February, or maybe you have been doing something that we really recommend, which is attending virtual open houses, for example, or online campus tours, or you know whatever, following colleges on social media. I mean, we recommend all of these things. Instead of writing about things that you noticed on your campus visit, you can write about at the open house where the professor of physics talked about the lab experiences that his students, you know, are offered and how exciting that was for you to hear about that, because that's something that you yourself want to do as well. So definitely, you know, research the web page, but this is one of the ways that I think it's highlighted that it's a good idea to go kind of beyond just a perfunctory web research. And by the way, when I research, when I talk about the webpage for the college, you like the literally the college catalog is online. So you can right. go in and look at precisely the classes that you're going to be required to take, which you should do, by the way, because you might not, the, your major might be might different. not like them. I think it is. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> I talk to a lot of students who want to do business and they don't like math. And I'm like, you really might want to look up what the requirements are for the business major. <laughs> Some of them have a lot of math, some have less, but you want to be ready for it either way. But anyway, you can really do deep dives into research. Most academic departments have web pages, and then the catalog of courses is online. You can look up lists of activities. And then, like I said, follow on social media, um, you know, so that you, that'll help you give a little more color to the essay as well. Perfect. I know one of my favorite tips that I have picked up from you and the other fabulous admissions experts on our team uh, regarding the Why This College essay is the thumb test. 
Mm-hmm. And I think to summarize it, you shouldn't be able to cover the name of the college with your thumb if it were on, you know, a piece of paper and have that essay apply to any other college. It should mm-hmm. be so specific that you should be able to identify the college that you're writing about, even if the name was missing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And while there are overlaps from college to college, every college is still slightly different mm-hmm. in how those things are going to be put together. I mean, literally, you can even look up what particular faculty members are doing yeah. as part of their research and, you know, you know, mention that as something you might want to be involved in. So just try and really be specific and the web page is going to be your best friend, but social media right. too. Yeah. So. Whatever you do, don't plug the wrong college's name in there. Oh I know that, that we review essays here at Bright Horizons College Coach and we get them all the time, right? That have the, yeah. the wrong name left in there because the student wrote it about some other college and just forgot to flip the name. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm like, you cannot do this. <laughs> this is not going to make a good impression. No. <laughs> Please do not do this. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um, All right. So finance question from Matt. He says, hi, my name is Matt. I'm a rising senior. I love the podcast and have learned so much. So thank you, Matt. We very much appreciate it. Um, Today, I actually have my own question. In brief, I believe that I am a competitive applicant for a few Ivy League schools, um, but my family does not qualify for too much aid. However, I still need the assistance. Um, because these are Ivy Leagues, there will obviously be less merit opportunities. So what other options are there besides loans and paying out of pocket, which I am unable to do? Thank you so much. Yeah, and Matt sounds so lovely, and I wish I had a better answer for him. But frankly, there aren't a whole lot of options um, if you truly will not qualify for Uh, need-based financial aid at an Ivy League college. Um, Matt says there'll be less opportunities for merit aid at Ivy League college. There'll be zero opportunities, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, for merit aid at Ivy League colleges. They literally give none, Matt. So just sort of cross that option off of your list at Ivy League colleges. Now, Ivy League colleges tend to be quite wealthy, and they do have lots and lots of money available for need-based aid. So um, I know you said, Matt, that you didn't expect to qualify for much. I don't know how much research you've done to bring you to that determination, but if you have not done so yet, I would fill out the net price calculator on the websites of the colleges you're interested in. Net price calculators, we've done segments about them before, but they're sort of a basic uh, financial aid calculator. You plug in your basic financial info and it will spit out for you an estimate of what financial aid you would receive from that particular college. And you might find that even though, you know, you're parents make a decent income, you're not expecting to qualify for much need-based aid, Um, you might actually qualify for some at the, uh, some of the Ivy League schools, which do tend to be more generous than other schools with their need-based aid because they just have more of it. They've got more money to throw around. Um, So I would, before reaching the determination that you can't afford an Ivy League school, I would do their calculators to make sure you confirm that, or you might be pleasantly surprised. Um, But there really is no merit aid. So if you don't qualify for um, need-based aid, you won't be receiving any assistance from an Ivy League college, um, which I'm sure is disappointing. But I will say on the bright side, if you truly are academically competitive where you could get into an Ivy League college, 
Matt, there will be literally hundreds of colleges that would be dying to have you on their campus and that would throw merit scholarship money at you to get you there. Um, so you may just want to cast sort of a wider net in terms of the schools you're looking at, which frankly you should do anyway, because even the most tip-top students, it's not a guarantee by any stretch of the imaginations that you would get into an Ivy League college anyway. So you should be having some more safety schools on your list anyway. But Matt, if you really are at that academic level where you may get into an Ivy League college, there would be hundreds of colleges that would be thrilled to have you and will offer you lots and lots of merit scholarship money. So I know it may be disappointing that you may not be offered lots of money by the top school on your list, um, but truly you can have a great college experience at so many more schools than you know the few schools in the Ivy League. We actually have a blog post um, that you might want to take a look at on our website, which blog.getintocollege.com. I believe it's called Does Where You Go to College Matter? And there has just been so much research that shows that the name brand of the college or the level of selectivity of the college um, on average has very, very little effect on any kind of future success. If you're a bright, ambitious student that could get into an Ivy League college, you're going to do well no matter where you go. Um, so I would just keep a little bit more of an open mind about the colleges that you're looking at because there will be plenty and plenty of colleges dying to have you that you can certainly afford. Uh, again, do the net price calculator on the Ivy League schools websites to see if you might actually be able to afford one of them because you might be pleasantly surprised. But if not, try not to worry too much about it uh, and make the most of another school that your family can afford. Uh, oh, and I guess I should just say, what other options are there besides loans and paying out of pocket? There just really aren't many. There are private scholarships out there that you can apply for. And if you win them, take them to any school. So you could win private scholarships and apply them to your bill at an Ivy League school. But those private scholarships tend to be um, very competitive to win, usually for small amounts of money. You know, here's $500, here's $1,000. They're barely making a dent into the cost of those Ivy League schools. Um, so you can certainly pursue some of those, um, but I just wouldn't count on them necessarily making an unaffordable school all of a sudden affordable. Um, those situations are pretty rare, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll just quickly add that I had a student who, she went to an Ivy, she got a full scholarship to Bucknell. Um, mind you, she came from a family where money was no object. They weren't in the point, they weren't in the top 1%, they were in the top zero one, maybe more percent. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just, and this was Bucknell. Bucknell's an excellent school. You will have all the opportunities in the world if you go to someplace like Bucknell. Yes. So yeah, Absolutely. something to think about. For sure. Uh, so the next question for you, Sally, comes in from Nisha. And she mm -hmm. says, what are the differences in value acquired in terms of education, brand value, alumni, placement, et cetera, between attending an on-campus college versus attending online courses, which could be tremendously cheaper and certainly way more um, simple logistically. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> things are a little different now. In the past, I would have said definitely do in person unless you're a working adult or sometimes people with kids. I mean, one of the things that I will mention is that statistically, it does appear that online courses are completed less frequently, um, at least at the community college level. 
than in person. I think online, it is much more challenging. You have to be much more self-driven. There's something about online education yeah. that means that students are less likely to complete. Um, I think, I mean, and I wanna be clear again, online education is so valuable for so many reasons, not least of which is you don't wanna get a terrible infectious disease or give it to your parents. But, um, you know, again, for people who can't make it to a campus, um, for a whole variety of reasons. And online education, I think, is amazing. Um, I will also say that I talked to Dr. Paul LeBlanc, who's the president of Southern New Hampshire University, and they have a huge online school. It's much bigger than their in-person. And he talked about how there are ways to make online courses extremely effective and that he feels like a really high quality online course can be even better than an in-person course. I told him that sounded heretical to me as someone who really enjoyed <laughs> my in-person experience. I mean, we'll see. I don't know that every school is putting as much effort into making sure online is really good the way Southern New Hampshire is. Um, so kind of getting to your question, like what are the differences in value? Um, I think in terms of alumni, you are simply gonna make closer relationships when you live on the same campus with other students, you know? I lived on a campus and I am still in touch. I mean, social media has helped with this, with people that I lived in the dorm with. And I have had those people reach out to me with college questions. I know that I could reach out to them, you know, if I needed assistance from them. That just simply would not have happened in an online course, um, you know, unless that online course was done amazingly well. So that's, I think, a big thing to think about. Um, and then there's also, I think it is, there's an additional challenge in being involved in extracurriculars. In all honesty, when it comes to getting jobs and being competitive for graduate school, it's a lot more, it's about a lot more than just what happens in the classroom. If you want to get into a competitive graduate school, you should be doing research with faculty in their labs. Some of that could happen online, but not all of it. And also student organizations, leadership opportunities are crucial. Again, borrowing an example from my own circumstance and, and you know, that of many people um, you know, who work for College Coach, a lot of us were campus tour guides. You know? And then from being a campus tour guide, I then got a job as an intern in the admission office. That's just not, would not have been a possibility if I had been working online. So you know, and these are, you know, this is going to be true of sort of any potential profession. If you're thinking about applying to medical school, you should probably be involved in medical student organizations, as well as, like I said, doing on-campus research. If you want to do business, you should ideally be involved in a business fraternity or doing some kinds of things like that, as well as the internships. So, you know, there just really is a huge amount of value. And I think that families do have to consider carefully cost because I'm not here to recommend that you go massively into debt. Um, and it may not be necessary for every career. I mean, I think that if, you know, you're, you know, I think the value is probably going to vary from profession to profession. Um, but in general, I think if costs are a concern, my recommendation is an on-camp experience at a community college then transferring to a four-year college as opposed to just doing online. Again, unless your circumstances just really don't allow in-person education. And then thank goodness we have online. So kind of a long-winded answer, but I really think in-person when it is going to be possible again is going to be worth it. Great. All right. Um, let's go on to your next question. Um, so Michaela says, my daughter is starting college in a few weeks and due to the COVID situation, 
we're wondering if we should buy tuition insurance. The college advertises a policy. Yeah, so tuition insurance has certainly been getting a lot of, at least press lately, a lot more attention because of the COVID situation. Parents, understandably, are a little bit nervous about sending their their students off to college this fall. Uh, my advice would be, I'm not going to tell you to to buy tuition insurance or not, but look very, very carefully at the policy at what is covered. You will see with most tuition insurance policies, if you read the fine print, um, epidemics are excluded, which would include COVID. So usually what tuition insurance covers is withdrawals for a medical reason, but not a medical reason that's caused by an epidemic. Um, So in general, COVID actually is not covered at all. Now there is at least one, maybe two big players in the tuition insurance market that are currently covering withdrawals because the student themselves contracts COVID and has to withdraw, meaning you'll get your your tuition money back if that, God forbid, were to happen to your child. Um, But um, it's not covering your college has to close due to a COVID outbreak. It's not covering they have to go to online learning and you don't take well to that. It's not covering, you know, someone in your family gets ill and you have to go home and take care of them. It's only covering withdrawals uh, if the student themselves gets ill with COVID and only for the time being. Uh, um, the, the company that I know of that is offering COVID coverage right now said, you know, until further notice, subject to change at any time. So that, that's a little bit worrisome to me. Um, mm-hmm. But I would look very closely at what is covered by the policy, what is excluded from the policy to determine if it's worthwhile to you. The other big thing to um, learn is what is your college's normal tuition refund policy. Um, normally, depending on if you have to withdraw at some point in the semester, you get most of your tuition back if it's early on in the semester. Later on in the semester, you may not get so much or any of your tuition back. Um, so understand that policy in order to determine whether or not you feel the need to buy tuition insurance or not. Mm-hmm. All right, Shannon, we're going to take a quick break. Um So, yeah, so we'll be right back and we'll continue answering listener questions. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Shannon, I think you were about to ask me a question. 
Yes, and this question was also submitted through our Instagram page. Um, but the question is, how do you address a diversity question on a college application when the student will not bring much to campus on that front? That can be tough, but the thing is, every student has something to bring on that front, right? Like, yeah. I think students really think it's always going to be about ethnic diversity, and that's simply not true. I mean, first of all, I want to just say that the, the bottom line is that most students who go to college come from relatively less diverse places. They come from the suburbs. A lot of them are white. I mean, the colleges know this, right? So, so, you know, I don't want, if you are part of a majority population, I don't want you to think, though, that you are exactly like everybody else. As you know, you are not. You are not. And the colleges know that, too. So students have written about diversity in so many different ways. Like University of Michigan is, is the um, question that I think has been challenging for a lot of my students. And so I've had students write about, like, like I had a student write about finding the chess community right? Like he, he's a chess player and he wrote about, and I said, you can absolutely write about being a chess player, but you need to write about why it makes you part of a diverse community, right? Like you need to pay very, very close attention to how they're phrasing it. Because what I've seen is that most of the diversity questions are asking about how do you, what kind of role do you play within this community? And then for sometimes you're going to have to explain what makes it a community, Right. Like yeah. what makes this a community? It's not obvious to me as someone who doesn't play chess, how being a chess player makes you part of a community other than like very loosely. But, you know, he went to tournaments, he made friends, he, you know, it, it kind of, it was sort of similar to him um, as maybe being a Boy Scout. Like, I think you could write about being a Boy Scout as being part of a community. Mm. And I think that that could bring some certain kinds of elements. You know, I had a student yeah. who, because of his commitment to Boy Scouts had really learned a lot about bullying. And then he ended up leading up an anti-bullying initiative at his high school, which was great. This was like a very popular young man and athlete. And so the fact that he, you know, he really hadn't been bullied in his life. I mean, we've all had people say mean things to us occasionally, but he hadn't been bullied in that way, but his work with Boy Scouts opened his eyes to that. And so he kind of talked about being a member of the Boy Scouts community and how he was able to take that perspective, um, you know, to his high school. And um, so just remember, there's a lot of different things that you, a lot of different types of communities that you're part of. Um, so it is not just about ethnicity. Absolutely, if you are a person of color and you want to write about being part of that community, write about it. Go for it. I'm not trying to dissuade that. But if you are part of a majority population, it doesn't feel like the right answer. There's some other way that you are part of it. Okay, Shannon. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Um, my son is about to start his senior year of high school. I was furloughed back in April and was just informed that I will not be returning to work. Will that be taken into consideration on my son's financial aid application? Yeah. So Unfortunately, not by default. Um, and Tom, you are not alone in this situation. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who lost their jobs over the past number of months. And the tricky part about the financial aid process is that it is very delayed. You will find that if you are applying, if your child is applying to start college in 2021, so applying for financial aid for the 21-22 school year, 
they will ask on the FAFSA financial aid application about your 2019 income. The, the financial aid application is always looking at your income from two years prior to the year you're applying for aid for, which is often about one year um, from when you're actually filling out the financial aid application. So you, for many, many people, their income from 2019 bears absolutely no resemblance to their income situation now in 2020 or what it may look like in 2021. Um, so uh, you need to fill out the FAFSA financial aid application with, you need to provide the info it's asking about. So it's going to be your 2019 income. But then, Tom, what I want you to do is send an email in to the financial aid offices at all of the colleges that your child is applying to, explaining the loss of income and documenting it. You know, they want very specific facts and figures, whatever you can give them, attach documentation to the email about, you know, you lost your job as of this date, and this is what your current income is, uh, or if it's just unemployment benefits, whatever income you are receiving right now, document that for them and say, can you take this into consideration when reviewing my child's financial aid application? The colleges have the discretion to do so, to consider special financial circumstances, but they won't do it unless you specifically ask them to. By default, again, they're just getting 2019 income. So if you want them to consider something else, you have to ask specifically. So send an email in, document um, your current income, ask them to please consider that. Um, I will tell you, and you want to do that about the same time you're actually submitting the financial aid application. Those applications for uh, high school seniors will open up in October. October 1st is as soon as you can complete your financial aid application. So you want to send in your FAFSA. Some colleges will require an additional form called the CSS profile. About the same time you're submitting those forms, send in the email explaining what your current financial situation is. Um, some colleges will be willing to consider it upfront and hopefully you get nice, generous financial aid offers from the schools um, on the first round. If you don't, if you don't like the looks of the financial aid offers that you end up receiving, I would not hesitate to go back to the schools again on the back end after you've received your offers. If you don't like the looks of them, if they don't make the school affordable to you, uh, send another email into the financial aid office and say, hey, remember me? Um, I lost my job and I am still out of work. Here's my full 2020 income that I can now document for you. Could you please reconsider our financial aid offer, uh, again, based on our loss of income? So you want to submit the info upfront, right, when you're applying for financial aid and you hope they take it into consideration upfront. In my experience working in financial aid offices, I know that not every college was willing to do so. Some colleges will want to wait and see uh, until 2020 is over and see how the full income for the year looks. Um, so I would not hesitate to go back again on the back end if you don't like the looks of your financial aid offer. Don't hesitate to ask them to reconsider. Nothing bad will ever come of it. They're not going to rescind your admission. They're not going to take away money they already gave you. The worst they'll do, they might say no again and not increase an offer, but they very well might increase an offer. Sometimes colleges will try and almost try and kind of get away with not considering special circumstances up front. They, they hope you'll just take them up on an initial offer, even if it's not particularly generous. Um, but sometimes if you kind of call them on it on the back end, they will be more willing to reconsider an aid offer. So let them know up front, document everything. If you don't like the looks of the offer, ask them again on the back end. 
Okay, Sally. So the next question for you comes in from Lola on our Facebook page. Uh, and Lola says, my son self-studied AP computer science in ninth grade and received a five on the AP exam. Fabulous. He has been coding here and there since and most recently for a summer research program. He is a rising senior now and is considering majoring in computer science. How do colleges view applicants who self-study the course versus those who take it as a class in school? Would it be less favorably since it's not on the high school transcript? Thank you so much. I mean, in general, I recommend that students take courses at their high school, but I'm less concerned about a course like computer science than like if you had self-studied for AP Calculus BC, where it's such a core fundamental course. Right. Um, computer science is the, a kind of a discipline, the course... I mean, this says something about how old, how long I've been doing this, but you know, I was around before computer science was an AP class. So, um, so I, I it's I think that computer science, the fact that he self studied for it and did so well, the fact that he's continued to do activities around computer science, I think is going to be fine, even though it's not on the transcript. But I am going to lean heavily on him continuing to do things around computer science. I mean, that's not something he should do intermittently. It should be consistent if he's applying into computer science programs. Um, and he has to do really, really well in math. And I know that wasn't your question, but that's the piece that a lot of computer scientists seem to forget. They're like, yeah, but I'm getting an A in my computer science class. Yeah, but you're getting a B minus in your math class. That's, a, that's not okay with the more competitive computer science programs. So I just wanna say, if he's got, you know, the activities, if he's got good grades in math, he has that five on the AP, which he'll be able to list on his application, I think he'll be fine. If a good course ends up being offered at his high school or someplace else, he might even want to consider actually taking like a MOOC, like a massive online, I forget what it stands for, uh, like, you Me know, <laughs> enrollment Open online. Board. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, like think about ways that he can build on what he's doing and just make sure that that happens really consistently. And then I think it's fine. Uh, and I think we have another question for you from Christy. Okay. Uh, and she says, I heard the UCLA admissions officer on your podcast talk about deferrals and gap years. Uh, but since the UCs don't have a very liberal policy, they don't grant many gap years anyway. Um, but many of the schools that our daughter is considering did in fact have high levels of gap years accepted. And I'm curious if schools filled in those students with their wait lists and if they replaced older students who took gaps with transfer students. I'm sure the answer depends on the college, but in general, do we think the class of 2021 will be vying for fewer spots? If that's true, I'm hoping it's offset by colleges being worried about their yields and maybe accepting more kids next year anyway to make sure they hit their numbers. Enrollment management is such a mystery. <laughs> All right, so we just have a few minutes left, so I'm gonna try and, I don't know, maybe it won't take me long to answer this. I mean, the uh, honest answer is that nobody really knows. Um, I think that uh, it, it, until recently, I would have said that I didn't think there was going to be a huge difference a year from now um, because the colleges were holding the line on gap years and a lot of students like, you know, I, I think like if a student gets into UC Berkeley, they're going to want to go to UC Berkeley, right? They're not going to want to give up their spot. 
Um, however, if, you know, Harvard has 20% of students not coming back, yeah, that's going to impact things. Um, but you also have to look at like enrollment management in terms of who's taking what classes, right? There's the classes that are taken by the first year students. You need to have replacement bodies for that. And then the students who are taking the classes, who are taking time off, who are in the middle of their college career, yet yeah, those are going to be replaced by transfers. I mean, honestly, um, enrollment management is somewhat complex in a normal year, like, and it's really going to be tougher. So I wish I could give you a better answer, but the bottom line is that we're not really going to know much until sort of mid-September, like when the students are supposed to be back in school. Um, right. So, I mean, I'm even curious what's going to happen with things like UNC Chapel Hill, which recent, which opened up and now they're going online and are some students going to decide not to enroll? So we just don't know. So I'm, I'm very sorry, Christine, <laughs> come back to us later after we talk to our friends who are in colleges, because even the colleges themselves just, you know, do not know exactly know. what's going to be happening. So, right. And I think the other thing I've heard in reference to this question is that some of the Yes, there may be less spots because of, of folks taking gap years, um, but maybe there'll be more spots because there'll be less international students um, right. coming. So right. That, and that's, that's a huge thing, too. Yeah. You know, um, so. All right. Yeah. Well, still a mystery. <laughs> Sorry, Christy, we didn't solve the mystery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. You're welcome. It was fun to be here, Sally. All right, and thanks again to Megan Steubendeck of Arbor Bridge for joining us. Um, we do these listener question shows all the time. So as Shannon said, submit questions to us, Facebook, Instagram, however you want to do it. Um, and be sure to join us for our show next week. I'm actually going to be host again. And my guests and I will be discussing setting goals for juniors returning to school and how to find and answer supplemental essays on the Common Application and Coalition our Paying for College segment will cover what we're hearing from schools and families about the impact of COVID-19. And remember, by the way, if you have a question about a particular topic, we may have already covered it. Um, to find the broadcast date, please go to our uh, blog page at blog.getintocollege.com. Shannon mentioned this earlier. Um, you'll be able to search for particular blogs for particular getting in show summaries there. Um, the full archive is going to be available to you. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.